You're listening to the Washington Hospitality Industry Podcast, your primary source of information related to the hospitality industry in Washington State. Good Hi, morning. everyone. This is Ken Wills with the Washington Hospitality Association, and welcome aboard, and thanks for joining our webinar today. Our, our webinar today is a market update on buy, sell, or hold a hospitality business in 2023. I've got a couple of experts on the uh, on the line here that I'm going to introduce in just a second. But first, I want to thank Lisa Lineberger for helping me out. Lisa from the association. Uh, and there's a place down on the bottom. Uh, of course, I'm sure many of you are familiar with uh, Zoom. And uh, if you have questions, just feel free to ask those questions as we go along, or you can wait until the end. And Lisa will read those out. Uh, and Lisa, feel free to interrupt me if I'm not asking you often enough. Um, so with that, let me um, let me present our professional experts. First, I'd like to uh, introduce uh, from IBA, uh, Oliver uh, uh, Kolentov. Uh, Oliver, I always screw up your last name and I apologize. But tell the code, that's okay. Tell the code, thank you very much. Like I said, the third time out, uh, that's the only time to hear me say it because then I say it correctly. But uh, Oliver has been a friend of the association for many years, helping members uh, with the buying and selling of their business. And uh, we thought it would be great to have them on uh, in a webinar to just give an update. Um, uh, first of all, I just want to mention that Oliver has got industry experience. His family has been owner and operators, multi-unit operators in, um, in our market uh, in Washington for many years. And I'm sure Oliver has washed many dishes like many of us uh, in Pretty Oliver. good. So say hello, Oliver. Hello, thanks for having me on. Yeah, <clears throat> and my background is I owned and operated a Proshki Proshki Bakery for many years. Uh, doing dishes was a large part of that, Ken, yes, but uh, uh, I've now been with uh, IBA in the mergers and acquisitions sector for about five years. Thanks for being here today, Aubrey. We appreciate you. And yeah. then, of course, you know, whenever we get into buying and selling, we always like to talk to those people that lend money. Um, and so from Banner Bank, I have Robin Doe. Uh, with us. She's an SBA commercial lending specialist, works in the division uh, at Banner Bank as their vice president. So Robin, I'd like to welcome you aboard. Thank you, Ken. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here today. Well, we're happy to have you. So again, thanks for your time. Uh, I'm just going to jump right in. Um, I think one of the big questions comes out right away with members, and I'm, I'm glad we put the subject right up front of sell, right? Is, is, it, a, is it the time, et cetera? So um, Oliver, I, I think you could take this one first, if you don't mind, but an overview of market demand and conditions. Are restaurants selling now? Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah. And I'm going to give a, uh, I'm going to give a very detailed answer. And of course it goes, it depends right now. Um, the short answer is, uh, yes, restaurant opportunities are selling. Um, you know, we are in a post pandemic, uh, post-COVID marketplace. And, and so we have a, a, a much more selective um, uh, and a, let's say picky, <laughs> picky buyer demographic who are looking for very specific things from businesses. Um, certainly recovery from COVID is one of those trends. Um, you know, if we're in 2022 or 2023, we need to be past uh, some of the damage of COVID. Um, and, and, and that's going to be the key, the key item, really. Are we, are we on to bigger and better things? And, and have we returned to the historical model of operations? Okay. And Robin, I, I would have just asked you similar. What are you seeing from the bank's perspective right now on buying and selling? I would say the volume has definitely diminished from 2020 through 2022. Um, but we're still seeing, you know, a average of between all of the seven, eight lenders across the board, probably about eight requests a month. Um, personally, my volume has slowed and I think everybody else's has slowed this year. So <clears throat> I'm assuming more people are holding right now, you know, waiting to see what's going to happen with the marketplace. Um, but the bank continues to lend into the industry and for the right um, uh, buyer, we're always looking to do um, a lending transaction there. We look at pretty much the same items that Oliver looks at when he's helping somebody get ready to sell. 
Right, right. And something to think about, and it was something as coming into this webinar or something I was thinking about is, you know, they talk about a recession towards the end of the year, or maybe next year and things like that is, you know, this has been a lot of operators have seen peak sales coming out of COVID and their sales have more than, I mean, have made up to what they've done post, you know, prior uh, post COVID or prior to COVID. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I would think more people, if you're thinking of selling right now, uh, it would be good timing. So anyhow, just probably more of something I see from the economic side. But um, Oliver, let me ask you this next question, if you don't mind. What are the key uh, factors uh, impacting value today? Yeah, and great question. And, and to dovetail into what you just said. You know, coming out of the pandemic, uh, there was pent up demand and, uh, you know, the technical term is COVID bump, right? And so we had that six months where everybody was getting out and <clears throat> and, and just wanting to make up for time lost. So, uh, you know, key factors impacting value, sales and profitability, we do have to factor in, um, was this temporary or was this permanent or is this, you know, the new normal moving forward? So, just like we're discounting 2020 and 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 that being a non-recurring event, hopefully, um, and, and factoring that out, valuations, uh, if there was a post-COVID um, increase in sales and profitability, uh, you know, we need to look at, was this a result of a pivot? Did we do something to really reposition the business model and this is the new normal? Or, or is it going to come back and, and we look at running financials and, um, uh, to determine if, if what the new normal is, because ultimately the buyer is looking into the future and and, and wondering what's the business model that they're buying. Yeah. Um, point number. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I apologize. Oh, I was just so uh, number two staffing. Right. I mean, this is no surprise, a, a known issue, and and an industry headwind and uh, industry and beyond the industry, but certainly retail and hospitality have been impacted. Um, uh, the market's always going to look at what does the staffing look like? How stable is it? Um, what's the role of the owner in the business? Is there a middle management layer? Um, are there key people in supervisory managerial roles and et cetera? Um, clarity of books and records. Uh, we need to be able to document the profitability that we're representing is in the business. Uh, looking for about three to four years of clear uh, and transparent financials to establish market value. Um, Robin can speak to that. They're looking for about the same, I, I would assume. And then location, um, location and market sector. Uh, this isn't something that a business owner can control, but setting the right expectation. Um, more distant locations, remote markets, um, seasonal businesses. Uh, it, it requires that the buyer either live in the community or be willing to relocate. Uh, that can take longer to find. Um, you know, up to a year or, or longer is what we're seeing with some of those businesses. Okay. Um, and then for sellers that are focused on preparing over the next 12 to 18 months, um, what would you suggest they need to, to do and prepare for uh, their business for sale? Focus on the key metrics. So the key metrics, again, what we just talked about is, is, is uh, <clears throat> you know, one of the things that, that we've seen is we're also you know, beyond COVID, we're operating in an inflationary economy where cost of goods has gone up. So if we're not, we need to be disciplined and increase prices. If we're not passing that cost onto the consumers, it's going to happen at, at our expense. So, you know, if we've, if we went up a hundred thousand dollars in cost of goods, and that's an increased expense that can be two to 300,000 of value at the time of sale. So understanding that that increase will trickle down to the year in financials um, and, and that that will impact value significantly uh, and just being disciplined about implementing price increases. Um, we really haven't seen a lot of pushback from, from customers in the general marketplace. Uh, most people seem to be uh, grateful that businesses are open and operating, providing good service and good product and, and don't mind paying a little extra for, for, for those amenities. So it's making adjustments to the business model and making them sooner than later, right? And staying on top of those adjustments. Um, that's really good feedback because it has been a, a challenging model. Let's say it's a, a moving target, you know, since, uh, since, you know, going into COVID and throughout COVID. So to uh, say the very least, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. And you want to see that on the financials of that, one of those key metrics, right? The bottom line. Um, uh, Robin, something I've been wanting to ask, and I, you know, how does the, I mean, obviously the economic, uh, current economic um, uh, um, environment is, is different. I mean, we're seeing interest rates increase, et cetera. Um, what would you say the impact on that is, is on demand? And also, what can we expect in terms of interest rates over the next six to 18 months? I wish I knew. We can run the stock. Robin, Robin, you're here because of your crystal ball. That's right. right. That's right. Um, Internally, we think they're going to keep ticking up a bit incrementally. Um, However, we've seen recent information um, that is encouraging it appears market investors are becoming more interested in holding uh, assets that are priced at today's market prices. And by that, I mean debt prices, uh, which says to us that over the next, you know, perhaps 18 months or so, they're thinking that rates will either hold or start coming down a bit. But again, that's that's based on information I've read and uh, certainly no expert there in economic models. <clears throat> and it, it can, could you repeat the first part of that question? Uh, it was, uh, you know, you mentioned this earlier. So, I, I mean, lenders view the current risk. Uh, how do lenders view the current risk and profile of food and beverage opportunities? I didn't bring that up. But it, the actual was another question, but... I should re- let's really start with that because the environment is today is 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 how are they viewing the risk today right for food food and beverage uh, in this you know crazy economic time so do you mind just touching on that a little bit and then I'll ask that first question again of course of course so um, I'm going to speak for uh, Banner Bank because I know there are other banks uh, in the industry that may not have the same perspective. Um, that we do, which I think is an advantage of the smaller community bank model. Um, And that is, you know, the industry has certain risk characteristics that are inherent, whether we're in an up cycle or a down cycle. Um, And Oliver touched on some of those, you know, one of them being location and things of that sort. So those are always there, no matter the economic cycle. And I think that's one of the reason banks that lend into the sector tend to direct restaurant beverage loan requests to the SBA department because of that government guarantee. It allows the banks to take on some additional risk. So at Banner Bank, um, we have never changed the way that we look at a food and beverage profile borrower. If the metrics are there, um, let's say that it, let's take the case of a buyer. So we have somebody coming in to buy. Um, it needs to pretty much meet the profile that Oliver outlined and that the person has good experience, the business has profitability that can cover the loan payments, um, and then hopefully there's some outside strengths, and by that we typically mean outside collateral um, or outside income or something of that sort, if the profitability of the business is a little tight with the debt. Okay. You did mention earlier that the current present impact has slowed it down a little bit, mm-hmm. but at the end of the day, you still seem to be doing enough volume throughout the month, but that impact is slow. So what I'm getting from you is that you haven't changed policy. This has not changed anything. Um, however, slowing things down a little bit, right, because of some of the interest rates increasing. Um, and then who knows where interest rates will go depends on how the Fed reacts to just the current marketplace. So mm-hmm. I agree with you. We hire you, we bring you on here for your crystal ball and you did the best you could. <laughs> so, um, all right, let's move to the, to the buy side. Um, um, I don't have any more questions on the sell side. I think it's, it's, it's pretty apparent it's being organized up head, uh, you know, just to summarize a little bit what I, what I heard, Oliver, it's preparing for your sale and making sure that 
your uh, your key factors are in line, that your business model, you're, you're, you're keeping that profitable moving forward. You're not working out of fear. You're working out of good, strong business intentions and that you uh, put together a, uh, a plan. In other words, you don't try and have a react a reaction in a sale, you try to plan that sale so you maximize the opportunity for you and the new business owner. I, I, I hope I somewhat summed that, summed that up okay. Yeah, no, that's that's perfect. I, I would say a rule of thumb is, you know, your exit should, should, should get at least the same amount of attention as your exit plan as your business plan, right? So when you started the business, it was it was very thorough and thoughtful. Uh, there's a lot of preparation that went into that. Um, same amount of, you know, same standard of care for running the business. So when you're exiting, um, give it the same same amount of focus and attention and plan. Okay. So on the buying side, uh, who are the buyers for the hospitality businesses now? Good question. Um, buyers, I would categorize buyers into three categories. Um, number one, owner operator. So this could be uh, someone who's just getting into the industry and uh, would be uh, maybe emotionally driven, right? Someone who's always had a dream, someone who's looking for personal fulfillment. Now that's, in my opinion, if we're talking about our hospitality businesses selling, that buyer has diminished. So we have less of those sort of uh, <laughs> romanticized, we'll call them buyers who just are chasing a dream and, and, and have always wanted to own a business. And the barrier to entry into hospitality has increased. And so we have less of those uh, <clears throat> types of buyers. Uh, another type of owner operator that's prevalent and in my opinion, favorable uh, is the hospitality professional, uh, the career hospitality professional who has spent their time uh, running a business in the corporate environment or kind of a larger empire elsewhere uh, or a general manager, or it could be even your own general manager, right? So um, someone who wants to, um, uh, who's maybe 10 to 15 years away from their retirement, wants to work for themselves and then possibly sell the business to fund their retirement, um, very qualified, um, you know, typically uh, has some savings and is able to secure a loan. And, and that's certainly, you know, by, from what I understand, one of the lenders uh, preferred buyers because they have that industry experience and uh, can, can make a case for running the business successfully. And um, there's strategic acquisition buyers. So these are existing operators who are looking to grow by acquisition. So someone who has a, a similar business model, looking to add locations, looking to increase market share, expand into a, a different geographical area, uh, open multiple locations. Um, and then there's private equity, um, buyer number four, who uh, typically looks for a larger business and, and is certainly uh, takes a clinical view um, and is going to look at the numbers more than anything else. Uh, you know, if it take everything I said about the uh, uh, the owner operator and, and replace it with the words ROI and, and, and the letters ROI and return on investment, then you're going to get private equity. But, uh, it, you know, certainly a good option uh, for businesses that qualify um, because they're a strong buyer. They typically don't seek outside financing. They're able to complete the transaction on short timelines. There are advantages if, if, if there are synergies. So. So you mentioned the first, the emotional aspect, right, is dropping off a little bit. Uh, what do you see right now as far as your largest uh, buying buyer client out there? Is it acquisition? Is it uh, my my employee? I want to pass this on to my employee, or is it private equity? Uh, it's the two in the middle. So it's the it's it's the experienced owner operator, um, okay. and it's and it's the strategic acquisition. Um, okay. So successful businesses that, that are looking to grow and take advantage of the, the current market conditions. Okay. Um, what are buyers currently looking for in a business opportunity? So every one of those buyers that I mentioned are going to look for different things. Um, and and a, a good way to, you know, to answer that is who are we targeting exactly when we're marketing, right? What sort of attributes are we targeting? So so if it's a smaller business, 
right? If it's an owner-operated business, maybe it has one owner, two owners working full-time, um, you know, then we're going to be targeting uh, a similar type of buyer who, who is looking to be, you know, pay themselves a living wage and, and, and maybe get a little bit of a dividend on top in the form of profits to, to, to justify risks of ownership. Um, you know, private equity, like I said, they're going to be all about the numbers um, and are going to be doing, um, you know, calculations and to, <clears throat> just to make sure that it matches their investment criteria. Um, you know, an owner operator, uh, it's never the same buyer and never the same business. So there's some, there's some variance, but, um, you know, profitability, stability, staff, are they buying themselves a job or are they buying themselves a business to, to, to operate? Um, those are all some of the, some of the parts of the buyer calculus. Okay. Robin, on this question, I want to ask Oliver, I might come back to you just to see if there's any, uh, um, any feedback from you on the banking side of this, but um, Oliver, from how is the buyers today currently assessing the fair market value? So this is a, this is a really good question and, and, and a really important question. And, and the best way to answer that is to, is to maybe contrast it with how the seller uh, is, is assessing market value and they can be drastically different. So for a seller to successfully sell, um, we need to understand buyer psychology, right? And, and, and one of the things that, that maybe gets lost in, in the seller's mind and maybe in the financials is, is, is that potential buyers who have capital to allocate, uh, they have options of what to do, where to put their money. So, so they're looking at, they're looking at elements like risk. So what's the risk of, of, of this investment? So if the business is, if somebody has, again, we'll just talk in round numbers, but if someone has a million dollars to spend, and, and they're looking at a business that, that costs a million, but maybe generates 150,000 in profitability, uh, they're gonna be looking at the risks of owning a hospitality business versus putting that money, let's say, opposite end of the spectrum, you know, let's say the stock market, right? Passive income. And, and then they can generate, you know, seven to 10% of passive income with, with no risks of ownership. Right, so they're looking at a hospitality business, at any business opportunity, saying, "What's the risk versus reward?" And then <clears throat> the other piece of optionality is competition. Again, it, you know, a seller may look at a business, at their own business, from a standpoint of somewhere in the back mind of the seller, there's a little abacus that counts everything that they've ever put into the business, right? And 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 what's the cost of of, of that business, and what have they invested? Um, and, and it's really not how a buyer looks at it because they're not looking at it from the replacement cost value. And they're not saying, uh, you know, what would it cost me to build this business from the ground up? They're looking at it and saying, what else is out there for me for a million dollars? Right, right. And the answer is quite a bit, right? So if you have options, if you have the capital, you have options. So they're doing that math. And, and so we need to be, competitive and the business needs to be priced fairly from the standpoint of not just sound financial principles, but current market conditions and competition. Because if there are better things available, you know, if you're looking at a travel package and it looks like a great deal, but then you see three or four that are better. Right. Right. So, so we need to be aware of what else is out there. And so, and so the buyer is doing those sort of nuanced uh, calculations that maybe sometimes escape the seller's value. Right. So um, I want you to think about this as I ask Robin a question here, because I, I, uh, I've got a couple of member questions here. So Robin, I, I do want to come back and ask you the bank side of this. But so, uh, but before I do, uh, you know, there's always that EBITDA range, that EBITDA range, right? That yeah. our members want to know. Well, that question's coming up from one of our members. So hold on there. Sure. Think about that because uh, I want to ask Robin a quick question. Robin, there was the mention about long-term employees uh, potentially purchasing. Um, I, I think a lot of operators think of that option, right? And makes that option from an operator standpoint of view an easier 
transition transaction because at the end of the day, right, they're not having to go out and overly market and and maybe the the time and efforts that they put together is maybe maybe a little easier. Bottom line is, does the bank or would you guys consider that as an option? Oh, definitely. Yeah, that that actually is my favorite uh, buyer of a business. Um, who knows it better and is has been in there and helped uh, build the profitability of which we're lending against. And so um, what I do tend to see, and I don't know, Oliver, you might, might see the same thing, is oftentimes um, the person who may be running the day-to-day -day business is typically pretty light on the down payment side. And so I see sellers having to be kind of flexible in how they're going to structure uh, with the bank to help their employee purchase the business. Okay. Flexibility on the deal structure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a whole separate topic, but yeah. And then and then from the bank side, again, I want to come back to you on the on the EBITDA side. I mean, are you going to looking at it from an EBITDA? How are you guys addressing the market value on the bank on the bank side? Well, for EBITDA, yes, we definitely look at EBITDA and there is a formula. Um, the SBA will accept a 1.15 ratio coverage for EBITDA. Uh, however, banks are going to want to see closer to 1.25. And especially today, because rates are rising, it's important that the profits cover uh, the buyer's proposed debt at at least, I think, 1.25. Higher is even better. Um, but in terms of value, I pretty much leave that in Oliver's hands. Um, typically, the buyers come to me with a prospectus of what you know the agent representing the company, and there's a set ask price. And then my job is to try and structure the loan so that I can come up to that 1.25 ratio. Um, so our typical banner bank structure has been the bank financing 80% of a transaction where it makes sense. That means the buyer or some combination of the buyer and seller needs to come up with that 20%. But if that loan at 80% of the total transaction value doesn't hurdle those ratios, then we're left with a few different uh, options for how to keep putting the transaction together. The bank also requires an appraisal. And so that's one of the last things we do after we qualify a person and the company for the loan is we do require an outside appraisal of the business. And Robin, so it, we, we started with EBITDA and, and, and went into Hey, just clarify uh, for a second. I mean, you're talking about debt service coverage ratio. So when Robin's talking about 1.15, 1.25, 1.4, these aren't even a multiples. Uh, these are debt service coverage. So okay. Explain. So that's you know that essentially that's uh, being able the owner being able to pay themselves a living wage and then cover debt service with a little bit of pillow. But it, maybe Robin elaborate on. Th thank, thank you, Oliver. I appreciate <laughs> thank that. Thank you, because Oliver. I I because uh, I was thinking the same yeah. thing. I got right. a bunch of people panicking right now. Yeah, I know. Them. Yeah, so right. so bankers mindset. I hear talking about debt service think... coverage ratio and what that means. <laughs> you 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 covered that well over. Thank you, um, Oliver. What are you seeing those ranges being? Um, so let's let's frame EBITDA and and really what that means. And it, it actually dovetails into what we just talked about, my last point, which is risk. Um, and so a risk and competition in essence, but, but so what does it, it's rate of return. So, so a 4X EBITDA means what? If we're, it's a multiple of what? Profitability, right? It's not gross revenue. It's not. So if we're pricing the value on four times EBITDA, that means that the rate of return that the buyer is going to get their investment back in four years, right? That's a, so it, how reasonable is it and, and how does that tie into the risk of the business model? And I'm going to go back to it depends and, and then give you a, a range here. So if we take a coffee shop, for instance, that is dependent on, let's say makes, you know, again, 
round numbers, a million dollars selling uh, coffee at today's prices at you know ten dollars a cup. Uh, that they depend on a hundred thousand individual buyers making that decision every day to come and and uh, bring in bring in the revenue. Now there's goodwill and 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 the customers have shown great capacity to do that, but but there's still a risk because it's not it's not recurring revenue. It's not guaranteed. Now if you take opposite of that, you take a business that's let's say a service business that operates on, that has multiple government contracts for, for cleaning uh, municipal facilities or, or uh, you know, state government buildings. That can be looked at as guaranteed revenue. And so the risk of owning that business is less. So the buyer is willing to pay a larger EBITDA to extend the period of repayment because there is a higher probability due to lower risk of them recouping their investment. So that's gonna increase, if there are multiple locations, that increases the EBITDA. If you have strong staffing, uh, strong middle management layer, that can increase the EBITDA. Um, so the riskier the business model, um, the lower the EBITDA. The rule of thumb, I would say, you know, for a single location restaurant, we're looking at probably between two, two to three times profitability. Um, and, and so part of this, this is going back a little bit. And Lisa, I apologize for not asking you for questions because I'm, I'm backtracking here. But to make to simplify what I think this question is asking is, um, in the role of so beyond, you know, the, the core uh, business metrics, you know, your cost of goods and pricing and etc. Um, the how how is how is it, I guess, how to balance third party versus in-store transactions? Um, is that an issue? Is that a separate issue? Is that, you know, how's that being addressed today? So third third party party delivery sales? Is that what yeah, we're talking yeah, about? third party versus in, yes. Sure. So uh, and we've seen that as well. I mean, we talked about businesses increasing revenue coming out of COVID. A lot of that is due to increased sales through third party delivery platforms. Uh, now, those are lower margin sales. So, it, again, we're going to look at profitability and say, you know, are those extra top line revenues actually bringing anything to the bottom line or are we just churning product, right? And so we've seen a range, uh, but if, if a buyer looks at it and says that, you know, 50% of the increase had to do with um, third party sales versus organic sales, <clears throat> Um, it, one is not as favorable as the other because one is a is a lower indexing sale delivering uh, less profit. So in in the prep situation, I as I'm listening to you respond to it, I'm thinking that uh, maybe to show what it was before and then the increase of sales of what that's added to my business and separating that as far as part of prepping myself, uh, prepping my you know, the sale of the restaurant to, I mean, does it make sense to keep that separate and have that story, correct? It, if it's a significant amount of revenue, I, I mean, if you're making more than 10% of your total revenue from, uh, from third-party delivery sales, and if it's a significant part of the business model, um, yeah, we'd want to see it itemized. Okay. So it sounds like, um, uh, a lot of our businesses has shifted, right? And a lot of it has shifted because of COVID and during COVID. We're we're uh, where we haven't experienced third party. We brought in third party, so we've added that. That's now a shift to some of our business, and and helping someone understand that transition in our business and how that can be used moving forward. I would think would be of value. And it's a work in progress, right? And then. You know, my personal opinion is, is that we need to start taking some of those revenues back and, and readjusting that model. Um, you know, third-party delivery, ultimately, it's convenience for the consumer. You know, who should be paying for that convenience? I, I think the consumer. I, I don't think that they should come at a significant reduction to profitability for the owner-operator. Okay. All right, that sounds good. Um, Lisa, anything else you think I need to pick up at this point? 
what are the pros and cons to startup versus buying a growing con going concern? I can answer it or Robin, do you wanna take it? Um, sure, Oliver, I'll take a stab um, from the capital standpoint. So I, as I mentioned, um, you know, I've done over my five years in the SBA lending arena, a handful of startup loans for uh, food and beverage, primarily pubs seem to be a pretty popular startup uh, business idea. The profile of that person who has come to the bank um, has had a significant amount of their own cash to put into the deal. And so I would say, you know, probably be prepared to have at least 40% of your total budget in cash. Um, the other things that help on that is having outside income. Uh, from one of the partners, a spouse, anything like that, and then definitely having experience in that industry. It is far less risky for the bank to lend money to a buyer of an existing business. And so, yes, that is our preference, but it's not impossible for startups either for the right operator. And then, you know, the main thing here is goodwill. And, and, you know, it, it, it can seem ephemeral, right? Goodwill, blue sky is another word for it. But what that really means is uh, when you open the doors, the customers show up or the phone starts ringing or, or there's activity. So when you open your doors as a startup, you don't have that. So what you're buying is a head start, right? And so if there is a head start, obviously that's safer for the lender. Um, and it's, you know, it's a preference. It's an entrepreneurial setting. If you uh, are someone who has strong ideas and strong concepts and, 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 and want to implement your vision, um, don't pay someone else for their vision. Start your own, right? Because you don't want to pay someone else for what they've built and then come in and do your own thing. That makes right. no sense. So uh, if, if you want to build on someone's existing success and, and, and feel like there's some, you know, alignment in terms of business model values, future goals, you feel like you can scale it, you feel like you can put your own stamp on it, buy an existing business and make it your own. Okay. Lisa, what else you have on queue? I have, in addition to core business matrix, business matrix, such as COGS, pricing, staffing, location, role of owner and management structure. Is there anything about tech adaptation or lack thereof that impacts saleability, um, such as the role of investments in customer loyal loyalty programs and the balance of third party versus in-store? Yeah, so this has to do with um, infrastructural, uh, operational infrastructure, I guess is the word that I'm looking for. So systems and models, uh, manuals and protocols, how smoothly does the business run? Certainly um, technology is a big part of, uh, of the hospitality business model and should be a big part of the hospitality business model, both for attracting employees to it and, and for saleability. Um, the younger buyer and the younger generation of buyers is always gonna be looking for uh, that tech advantage, um, you know, just in its simplest form, anybody looking to go grab a bite, I, I think 90% of the people who are trying to make up their mind are gonna look on their phone of, 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 of where to go, how that pops up and that decision is now made very quickly, uh, what that first impression is, how easy is it for someone to find you, to order online, to pre-order, uh, to read your reviews, um, make reservations, I mean, all of those things. and that you know, extends further to, 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 to hiring decisions, day-to-day uh, -day operations, ordering from suppliers. I, I would say, you know, going back to one of your questions, what can an owner operator do in preparation for the sale? That's a good area of focus is to, is to make sure that you're streamlining your technological adaptability. Hey, what else do you have, Lisa? Uh, the last question we have, does an asset intensive business generate a higher, a higher EBITDA multiplier 
such as generating 5 million in revenue generated from 5 million in hard assets with a 1 million EBITDA, would, what would the multiplier be? Yeah, and that's, uh, that's a great question. Uh, typically asset heavy businesses are, are less attractive than businesses that are lighter on their feet. So if, you know, if I'm buying a million dollars in profitability, uh, but I'm being asked to pay $3 million for the assets and the equipment to, to generate that profitability, that's less attractive to me than, <clears throat> than buying a million dollars in profitability and maybe buying $500,000 in assets, $200,000 in assets. So it increases that rate of return. So if, if you know, a business that, uh, that has a large amount of fixed assets uh, increases the time to, to, to recoup the investment. So generally, short answer, uh, we need to be reasonable on the price of fixed assets. A good model for that are manufacturing businesses. It, it's very common, let's say a, a winery or a alcohol manufacturer where there's lots of equipment, lots of expensive equipment. They may not be generating <clears throat> a lot of profit. It could be problematic to sell. Um, most of the value needs to be focused in the goodwill, which equals profitability. And then fair market value for the assets, yeah, and inventory. Robin, final question here on the buy portion, and I want to talk a little bit about hold. Uh, we're gonna, I'm gonna try and rush through these questions because we're going a little long here, uh, but I want to make sure we try and get as as much of this information in as possible. Uh, what are the key pot buyer qualifications required to complete uh, a successful transfer of ownership? In this industry, um, especially, would be the number one would be um, management experience and industry. Well, first industry experience, and then after that, management experience within the industry. That said, that's not the profile of every uh, buyer who I've lent money to. But to start off with, those are pretty critical issues um, that make the rest of everything go a lot smoother. Um, and then the second thing are the same thing that Oliver's looking at, what are the profits of the business? And I compare that to just back up a bit to that EBITDA question. So the profits or EBITDA, I refer to those kind of in the same operating profits, uh, how much do they cover the loan payments by? And, and that's how I evaluate that. And then the third thing is uh, strength of the individual buyer outside of the business they're buying. Do they have other assets they can lean on? Liquidity they could lean on if things got into trouble. So I think those are the three primary characteristics of buyers that are seeking bank capital have the easiest ability to get. Okay. I have a, another uh, buyer question here, or I should say selling question, but before, let me ask uh, just a couple things. I wanna make sure I get this in. So let's say your position now, you're thinking of holding. And just to brief through, obviously planning a good exit strategy for the future sale is important. Growing your market value to your business is important. I, 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 I definitely got that so far. Um, and what you've what we've talked about, um, but let's talk the highest and best and lowest and worst, right? So what's what's the what's the best way or the worst way to use company resources and ownership remaining tenure at the helm? Uh, best way for me, I would say, would be to uh, put in a plan in place and in a timeline and get the business evaluated. So that you know what you're working with, uh, and don't put that off um, until the end. So an evaluation will tell you what's impacting your value positively or negatively, and will kind of create a roadmap of what you need to work on. Uh, I, the worst in the short term, I would say, are large capital capital expenditures and leasehold improvements. So uh, you know, if you're selling in the next 18 months, don't redo the roof. Um, you know, don't, don't start a ground up kitchen remodel. Uh, the best way to recoup 
capital expenditures is through operating those assets and, and collecting the profitability that they generate. Um, you know, if we're meeting a buyer and, and we're saying, you know, we just put a new roof, uh, you know, the likely answer can be, I'm, I'm glad everybody's dry. That's fantastic. Now, do, do you have a general manager and how long have they been with the company, right? So it's going to be, it's going to be those aspects that they'll focus on versus um, large infrastructure or having built a patio that may or may not be generating a profit, but you've invested a lot of money. So I would, I would look at large CapEx uh, carefully and whether they actually need to be done or can be addressed with a repair um, instead. So cosmetic, but not large assets or not large capital. Cosmetic. If it doesn't need to be done, if you're not planning to operate it long-term, you know, don't start no, redoing don't, the foundation or replacing the wall. Don't spend your money. Keep it on your bottom line. Um, okay, so I got to ask this one more time in a different way because uh, this is this is it's coming up from one of our members. So uh, what's a good price for a restaurant that generates a million dollars a year? One location? Single yep. location? One location. I will say between three and three and a half million roughly. So, uh, uh, you you answered that EBITDA question, which I think a lot of people ask, right? So three. Very, three this three is, this is very general, but I want to stop saying it depends and get just something. nailed you give down. people something to sink their teeth into, but. And if I got a franchise brand, it's four and a half. Okay. Yeah. All right. <laughs> just, just saying, just saying. Yeah. Robin. Ken's biscuits is seven <laughs> X plus biscuits plus biscuits. No, seriously. Uh, thank you very much, Robin. I have a final question. I'm going to ask you to break out your crystal ball a little bit here. So it's always the tough question, right? Is what's the economic look uh, forecast for 2023? I, I think it's difficult. Um, I, I think we're in for a more months of challenging price rising, uh, interest rates potentially rising more. Um, you know, at this point, we're six months to the end of 2023. And so okay. I, I think the bank, not just myself, we're thinking it's at least 12 to 18 months before okay. things start to kind of get more business friendly. Is that a good way to say it? <laughs> No, that, that's well said. And so if you're in that position, you're, you know, I'm selling now because there's peak sales, there's an opportunity for me uh -huh. to sell. I mean, I can see a reason uh -huh. for both. And if I'm deciding to hold, I just spend more time on my business model and et cetera. Uh, it would make sense that uh, to be prepared in the next 12 to 18 months. Um, and I just layman's way of saying, summing it up myself, it depends on uh, what your current business condition is in. You know, and what you're talking the, the decision to hold, sorry, just a real quick, the, the decision to hold, you know, one of the biggest mistakes that I see is it, kind of the, the residential real estate model applied where the decision to hold automatically equates in the value going up by the virtue of just passage of time. That doesn't happen with businesses. So your decision to hold should be uh, closely tied to a plan of how long you're holding for and what are you doing in that time? Because right. if the value is not going up, if you're not increasing it, it's going down. There is no sort of status quo to where we're just going to hold and keep it going. And, and, and uh, you, you know, it will likely increase in three years. If the, if you, if your business metrics don't improve or the economic outlook, uh, you know, changes for the worst. And uh, so it's different than, than selling a house, selling a boat. It, it's, it's a completely different transaction. Okay, we have time for one more question. And, uh, and that, that was a good ending, by the way, but here's the one more question. If we have a member question, I wanna make sure we get Let's them in. Let's do it. So if there's anyone else, you better get it in now. But with many major retailers uh, shuttering locations, is there going to be a movement from landlords on location pricing? So this is a rent rent rate question is that are we going to see more favorable lease rates or i mean that's how i interpret it because it's but uh lisa yeah. did you interpret it differently than i did i think of it more of of of, of that value of future rents it, it, yeah i 
landlords are in the business of leasing commercial space for profit. That's their business model. If they're going dark and they're losing tenants, they, they're going to need to decrease the asking price for their product. So um, it's going to be really location and market sector dependent. So if we're talking Bellevue, we're booming. There's, there's no vacancy, right? Are we going to see a decrease in, on the east side? Probably not. Um, it, you know, areas, certain areas of Seattle, possibly, um, you know, areas north-south. So look at, answer this question with, uh, and maybe buyer can, and maybe this, uh, uh, the viewer can elaborate, but um, which, what geography are we talking about? You know, like Tri-Cities, Spokane, booming areas now. Right. You're not going to see a decrease. Right. If and there's demand, there's yeah. not going to be a decrease. That all, all you might also get more of that information from just talking directly to your landlord as well, or in that process of that of that transaction. Yeah. Having that's some point, you generally have that conversation with your landlord. And, and at no point are you at more leverage than when you're renegotiating a new lease, because yeah. then you can then you're, you know, you're prepared to put your signature on a document and put your money. Where your mouth is and, and and then and are asking for you know what's the exchange of value here so right um uh this is a good webinar and really good thoughtfully um thoughtfully thoughtfully put out answers I, you know I, I could go on here for another 10 minutes i'll be honest with questions so i'm, I'm not going to do that if uh there are questions uh, please contact me or the association or lisa uh, we'll get uh, get the information over <clears throat> to Oliver and Robin. Uh, my email address is kenw at wahospitality.org. Uh, and Lisa's is Lisa L. Uh, hopefully I did that right at uh, wahospitality.org. Uh, Oliver, do you want to just shoot out your email here real quick in case anyone wants to ask you anything direct? Yeah, uh, it's Oliver at IBA Inc dot com. That's easy. Oliver at IBAinc.com. And Robin for lending questions? Sure. It's Robin dot D-O-D-E at Bannerbank.com. And that's Banner with two N's. Two N's, yeah. As as of recently, I hear. <laughs> yeah. Unless, <laughs> Just I, today. unless I change it. <laughs> right. Ken was like, I don't know where I saw it, but I thought I had one in. But anyhow, learn something today. Oliver, Robin, Lisa, thank you very much, Lisa, for help putting this on. And, and Robin and Oliver, thank you very much for being our experts here. On thank you, everybody. Appreciate everyone's time and tuning in. It's not an easy time, but, you know, please reach out with questions. Happy to have a, a conversation with any any members of the audience who wish to continue it's never a bad time to buy sell or hold <laughs> it's, it's always good for one of those it's always good for one of them all right thank you guys very much right, Appreciate thank you, thank you ken thank you all Bye. and to anybody watching we are recording this it'll be up on our website later on today if you missed anything you can go back and rewatch it thank you lisa thanks thanks lisa thank bye thanks for listening to the washington hospitality industry podcast Make sure to visit our website, wahospitality.org, where you can learn more about the restaurant and lodging industries and the Washington Hospitality Association. Be sure to subscribe to the show in iTunes, Google, Spotify, or iHeartRadio so you'll never miss a show. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Thank you so much for that effort. Until next time.